Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi, recording from MDL Group, recognized market leaders in commercial real estate brokerage and property management in Las Vegas, Nevada. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. Welcome to Takeaways, everybody. I am here today with Clyde Horner. I know Clyde as my Vistage chair, and we'll talk about what that is and what that means. But I want to introduce Clyde in a, in a little bit of a different way. Clyde Horner is a belief challenger. His superpower is asking questions. Clyde spent most of his professional life as a CPA. These days, he spends his time and attention seeking out powerful learning. Clyde is a walker and a blogger. He is happiest driving his red Corvette with a new pair of fresh Nikes. But mostly, Clyde is looking forward to spending another 50 plus years married to his bride, Kay. Clyde, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. This is really exciting. It's exciting for me too. Um, we talked a little bit before, and you know that this show is about my takeaways from the people who have influenced me. So I'd like to just jump right in and ask you, what one thing or event or person has defined or shaped you the most? As I thought about that question, it got harder and harder. I went back to my childhood and thought about my parents. Uh, I immediately thought about my wife, who we met when we were sophomores in high school and got married uh, one year after graduating from high school. So it would be hard to say that she wasn't the most because, uh, powerful because we spent 56 years together. And at the same time, I think the thing that changed me the most and totally sent me in a different direction was in 1986 when I learned I had a melanoma. Uh, a skin cancer that's primarily the the one type of skin cancer that's the most deadly. And my wife found it one morning when I was shaving. It was in the middle of my back uh, at my waist. And she said, you know, how long has that been there? And I said, hmm, how would I know? However. Because you can't see it? Right. Can't see Did it. Did you feel anything? No. I had no idea. And at the same time. I remembered back to my childhood because my parents always, I, I was a kid with freckles and I couldn't, it had a, I had a hard time uh, getting a suntan. I got a sunburn mm. and my mother told me over and over and over, stay out of the sun. Well, that wasn't a good idea to me because I wanted to look different and what have you. And um, so I knew right away it could be a challenge. So I called my doctor. And went by to see him quickly. I got uh, uh, an appointment within two weeks, which was way different than my parents because my parents never went to the doctor. They took two aspirins and another cup of coffee and assumed everything would be okay. And for whatever reason, I decided to uh, take action. And uh, the doctor took one look at that and said, I think we ought to take that off and take a look at it. And so he did. And is it that easy with a melanoma? 
Yeah. Okay. It's, uh, it can it can be scooped off or cut off easily. And uh, so why is it so scary if it's that you know get get into the doctor get it cut out and you're good to go? Because it's the it's the most prevalent type of skin cancer that spreads to other soft organs in the body. It could be the eyes. It could be the brain. It could be the uh, lungs. And some uh, an, another kind of skin cancer, a couple others, aren't that invasive. Okay. So I knew I knew we needed to do something. And good thing your wife saw it. Otherwise, you wouldn't have, have known it's there. And I would have never. Then known. it spreads. Yeah, I would have never known. How old were you when this happened? Forty three, and with two kids and uh, a job and uh, a career that I thought was unlimited. So anyhow, we did that, and it took what I thought, forever to get the results back. How long? Uh, maybe two weeks. And that, <laughs> yeah, when you're and when you're facing is it cancer, is it not cancer, yeah. it's a long time. Finally, I started calling, and uh, the nurse finally said, you need to come in and see the doctor, which was confirmation that it, it was an issue. So I went in to see the doctor, and he didn't seem to be con- very concerned about it. He said, I think it's okay, blah, 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 and I don't think we need to do anything else. And I said, well, what about radiation, chemo. He said, this is the one type of cancer that doesn't respond to anything. So we either got it or mm-hmm. we didn't get it. So I didn't know what else to say or ask. And so do I, they, do they at that point check other parts of your body when you go in? Yeah. Do you ask for that? Well, I didn't at that point. So I got in my car and left and thought about it. And so the first thing I did was start looking around to find a second opinion. So I didn't have a doctor in Las Vegas, and somehow I found a surgeon, and I went to see him, and he was more aggressive, or I'm not sure what what to say, but he said, you know, these other uh, molds you have on your body, I think we ought to take those off. And, And I said, well, okay, let me think about that. And I went back home and started thinking, And I found a time when my regular doctor, my skin doctor, was not in his office. And so I went to see his partner. And uh, You're so sneaky, Clyde. Yeah, I know. That gives you a little idea how uh, distrusting I was at that time. So I went to see him, and I said, you know, I'm really concerned about this. And would you take a look at these other two or three? And he said, I don't think they're important or a problem. However, if you want me to scoop them off, I will. I said, yeah, let's do that. So he scooped off two or three, and they turned out not to be a problem. And somehow I went back to see the regular my main dermatologist, and I said, "Uh, isn't there a way that we should take more off just to make sure we got clear margins? And he said, if that's what you want to do, I'll do it. And I said, yeah, that's what I want to do. And he said, okay, we'll do it right now. So he took me to another room in his office. Are you sure you weren't just trying to get some inches off of your waistline, Clyde? Well, uh, not at that point. (laughs) Uh, Anyhow, he laid me down on this table, and he brought his nurse in and asked her to deaden my back. And he proceeded to cut uh, a piece of meat out of my back about an inch and a half in diameter and maybe a half an inch deep. And the reason I know that is because they had it in a little bottle. And you asked to see it? Yeah. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) And they sent it off and came back, and he says, we're good to go. They're clear margins. And 
uh, at, at that age, I was still not very trusting. So I had a, uh, an insurance agent that knew some people, and he knew a doctor in Santa Barbara that I think was Reagan's doctor at one time. So I said, I'll go, I want to go see anybody. So I went to Santa Barbara and got to know him, and I've been going to him since 1987. Anyhow, they watched me very closely with scans every three months to make sure it wasn't going to another soft organ. And here I am many years later, healthy as a horse. So you were 43 when you found it. It, You said it was about two weeks to get into the doctor, two weeks to get the results, and I don't know how many weeks thereafter with the uh, charades going from one doctor to the insurance agent to the partner and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So this took up how much of your life? before you were comfortable and trusting that you're good to go? Um, I don't remember how long it was. It took me, first of all, uh, it was on my back, and it was bandaged, so I could cover that up with a coat. Mm -hmm. And so the only person that knew about this was my wife. I did not tell my kids. It took me two years to tell them. And uh, I didn't tell my employer either or any of the people I worked for for three months and at the end of three months I was supposed to go back to Santa Barbara to have another scan and my uh, CEO said "Uh, I thought you just got back and I said I did and he says what's going on and I told him at that point in time he's the only one that knew besides my wife for two years Um, it was one of those things that I I didn't want to be treated any differently I wanted to be treated just like I'd always mm-hmm. been treated. I was afraid if people knew me, they would tiptoe around and do silly stuff. So I didn't tell anybody. So you mentioned 43, you had a career, your CEO. What were you doing at the time? I was the uh, CFO at Cashman Equipment Company and Cashman Cadillac. And this melanoma changed your life. How? Um, I don't know that I knew it changed my life until quite a few years later um that was in 86 by 91 i knew i wanted to do something other than debits and credits and i uh started expanding into uh personality and wondering and wanting to figure out who i was what do you mean by expanding into personality i wanted to find out who i was and what caused me to tick what made me aggravate you and what made you aggravate me and and I brought in a consultant, and I, then I started, after reading, I realized that we as a company would be better if we knew what our vision for the future was, what kind of values we wanted to live by, what our purpose statement was. All this touchy-feely stuff. Well, you could call it. Yeah, I've, had, I've been accused of that before. And so that's the direction I headed. Uh, at the time, I don't think I knew what was causing that. It just seemed like the right thing to do. And uh, I didn't know how to do it. I'd never done it before. I knew numbers and things. I didn't know anything about people. Uh, I certainly didn't know anything about vision or how to write it. And I just kept pushing and pushing. And finally, uh, my CEO sent me to Stanford for two weeks. Just to just to get you to leave Malone about this vision stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, he was raised Catholic, 
And he thought the only people that talked about vision and values were priests or the Pope. And uh, while that was interesting, I knew this was the right thing to do. When I got back from Stanford, I was even more convinced and uh, uh, that almost got me fired. And at the same time, it pushed him to the point of saying, okay, I can do this. And he went away. He said, we'll do this in a month. I'll have this back to you within a month. No kidding. And he did. And it was the coolest thing I've so ever seen. So he went seen. from almost firing you mm-hmm. to getting it done in a month. In a month. And the vision was – and the values totally changed the way we saw ourselves as a company. And it impacted people from the top all the way down to the mechanics and the parts employees and the administrative people. Do you remember what the vision was? Yeah. It was all about being the leader, by the worldwide leader, by which all Caterpillar dealers were measured. And the interesting thing at the time was we weren't even in the top 50% of the ones in North America, much less all around the world. And by setting that vision, it gave us a chance to really do something big. And what I learned from that is... If you've got a vision and the first time you tell somebody about it and it and you're not embarrassed, it's probably not big enough. I can remember the first time I told somebody and I was embarrassed to say it because I knew they thought or I believe they must have thought they'll never be able to do that. And that just kept kept pushing us forward. So you're about 50 right now in the in the timeline of the story? Uh I was a little less than that, yeah. Okay, so you're five or so years cancer-free. You're motivated to find um, more about your personality. Uh, you're, you're pushing for vision and purpose. You don't know why yet. Uh, what happened next? Uh, the, the thing that happened next was uh, something that none of us saw. When I started going to Santa Barbara to see my doctor because of the melanoma, I was competing athletically in ski racing and running and uh, 10Ks. And my CEO at that time was uh, smoking three uh, packs of cigarettes a day. And I talked to him a lot about that. And lo and behold, one day he asked me about seeing the same doctor I saw in Santa Barbara. So I got him hooked up. And a couple of years later, one day, uh, the leadership team wo- woke up and found out that he was not smoking anymore. And b- after that, we saw that he was starting to run. And uh, I'm not sure how many months or years went by. Uh, we got involved in Corporate Challenge, and he ran his first 10K. And then he started running more and more, and he's about to run his first marathon. He's running 50 miles a week. No kidding. Yeah. And one day, I was waiting for him at our hangar out at Quail Air and got a telephone call at 7 o'clock in the morning that they had found him face down by the railroad track behind the uh, fashion show. He had died of a heart attack. So that was the next thing that happened that I remember that, however, we had done a lot of leadership and team building uh, and, and personality work with all the employees by then. 
and uh, it was really a traumatic event that uh, affected me and all the employees. Were no you matter. the first one to get the call? Um, somebody from the sporting house called our VP of sales, and then uh, the VP of sales called me at the hangar. And what did you do? Um, I went into shock. And I was standing there talking to him with the, the uh, VP of sales, the VP of sales okay. on the phone mm-hmm. with our pilot. The plane was sitting ready to be uh, uh, for us to go. We were going to Winnemucca because we were just uh, distrib- uh, putting together our first uh, uh, 240-ton trucks, mining trucks. And I was uh, in disbelief. I asked a lot of questions over and over until I finally realized that this must be real. And so I said, okay, I'll, uh, I'll be in the office soon. I hung up the phone. I turned to the pilot and said, uh, put, the hair, put the airplane back in the hangar and walked out and got in my car and started driving home. I you called, didn't tell him why? No. And about two years later, the pilot one day said to me, do you remember what you said to me uh, when you got that telephone call? And I said, no. What did I say? He said, you said, put the plane in the hangar. We're not going. You never told me what happened. I think that's just uh, a sign of grief, shock. Did you know that you were in shock, or do you know that now, looking back on the event? No, it's, it's, it was all about looking back. You don't know. You did not know when you were in the moment. No. I, I knew it took my breath away, and I got in my car, and the first I, I didn't know what to do. I'd never thought of this before, never planned for it. And the first thing I did was call my consultant, and uh, he was a really good friend of mine. And uh, he, uh, I, I guess on some level, calmed me down, and he says, I'll meet you at the office. And so he, he got there fairly quickly. And we sat down and figured out, okay, what are we going to do first? What are we going to tell the employees? What are we going to tell our bank? What are we going to tell Caterpillar? What are we going to tell our customers? Because we'd never thought of that before. What is that called? That uh, <laughs> I don't know. What do you mean by what they call? I mean, shouldn't a business have yeah. this kind of a plan? An emergency plan. An emergency plan. Yeah. And our, here's, a, I mean, it's it's not uncommon that a company doesn't have one, but here's a cashman equipment company. A, a leader by which all the others will be measured, and there was no no plan. Yeah. So it's up to you and the consultant to form a plan. Yeah, we had an estate. We had serious estate planning. Uh, we had done all of that. We knew about all that. Uh, we just didn't have a strategy if something serious happened because we never uh, – the CEO was only 46, so we never expected him to die, maybe his dad. However, we never expected him to die. So there we were uh, having to create something on the fly. And I think that's one learning I've never forgotten about because most of the people I work with these days don't have emergency plans because they don't think emergencies are going to happen. It'll never happen to me. It never happened to me. And if I do, I'll figure it out. And... uh, it's just such a traumatic event that shakes the organization from the top to the bottom. What surprised you the most? 
I think what surprised me the most was how it impacted all employees. It didn't matter what level of employee it was. Uh, I don't think I realized how much the employees really cared about the CEO and how they viewed him as a person. And uh, it was our job to sit down and talk with them. And we had employees spread all over the state. And uh, we also had to figure out what to tell our bank, uh, what we what we're going to tell Caterpillar, and the customers. Were we going to stay in business? We were going to continue to do what we were doing. We were going to grow. What were we going to do? And we had to come up with a plan quickly, and that's what we did. So, who took over as CEO? Uh, ultimately, our CEO's spouse came in shortly after the funeral and, and became the CEO. And I continued in my role. For how long? I continued uh, in that role, which was executive VP, for a year or so. Then I became the president. And then I stayed for about four more years. And then what? And then I left in 1998, not knowing what I was going to do. I left for, uh, I uh, didn't do anything for about a year, uh, figuring out I thought I was an accountant. I didn't know I could do something other than that. And so I went out. Uh, my consultant helped me do some consulting with him. And ultimately, I uh, uh, found out I could do something different, which I'm doing now. Okay. Talk about what you're doing now. Well, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm facilitating groups of business owners, CEOs, presidents, and the people that report to them in a learning environment. It's a learning organization. It's a worldwide organization in about 20 countries, about 21, 22,000 members worldwide. It's not a, a political organization. It's not a networking group. It's not a social group. It's all about learning. And it's all about each of us helping each other. And it's all about uh, being seeing adults coming together, trusting the people around them, and saying, I don't know, and I need help. It's just really the, a cool learning for me. I never realized how badly adults, especially CEOs, don't have anybody to talk to. They, they, uh, it's not easy or good in many cases to talk to their spouse because their spouse has their own agenda. They don't, uh, their friends want to be their friends. They don't want to hear about problems at work. They don't want. Yeah, they can't talk to their employees because scare them to death. Uh, many times they don't like their partners, so they don't want to go talk to them, <laughs> and so they don't have anybody. That's where the old adage comes: uh, "It's lonely at the top." And so this is an organization where you put a group of like-minded business owners together in a confidential setting, building trust, and. We learn from each other because all of us, even though there are no competitors in the room, it's amazing to me to, to notice that all of us have the same issues. We've got income revenue issues. We've got profitability issues. We've got people issues. We've got banking issues, strategy issues. It's all the same. 
it's just different products and services and a different set of customers. So uh, an engineer can bring up an issue with an, a, a CPA, and they both know what they're talking about instantly, even though they don't know anything about their particular expertise. So you, you called yourself a facilitator. The organization is called Vistage. When you started, it was called Tech. And is your title, what is your official Vistage given title? The technical title, I guess, would be Vistage Chair. Okay. And, or Vistage Chairman. Uh, what I do, though, is I facilitate. And I think if you look that up in the dictionary, it's, it's the, de- the definition is to make easier. So my job is to help a group have a better conversation where introverts talk, extroverts be quiet, uh, learn to ask challenging, tough questions, and, and learn to answer questions with something other than I don't know because we don't accept that answer. That just such shuts down the conversation. How many groups do you have? I have four. I have three CEO groups and one key direct report group. Okay. So quickly, what is a key group versus a CEO group? A key group, a key group is the second C level, like uh, the CFO or the business development manager or the vice president of sales or the HR director. The CEO group is made up of people with bottom line. Uh, results-driven, responsible for the balance sheet and income statement. So it could be a CEO or a business owner or a top executive. A president. It could be a VP of a division, as long as they're responsible for the bottom line. Got it. And they can go back and implement without Because that profile of professional has their own set of issues. And then the key members, they've got a different set of issues what would be one example of the differences in issues? Well, the CEO or the owner is probably thinking more strategically from a vision or a strategy point of view, whereas this first level or second level are thinking much more tactically how to implement something today or tomorrow. So, And uh, the key members might have issues with the CEO – and the CEO might have issues with the key members, and that's why we, we, you keep them separate. Absolutely. They're, they're thinking differently. Plus, the biggest value I can probably help them is to learn how to have a conversation with each other because many, time, many times they're afraid, to, going both ways, to bring up a subject that really needs to be talked about. So you have four, four groups. Three of them are like my group, which mm-hmm. is a CEO business owner group. Mm-hmm. I came to MDL group in 2013 and my partners, Kurt Anderson and Carol Kleinong were in Vistage at that point for, I don't know how many years, 10 years, 12 years, 15 or something like that. Um, can you describe how many people are in a group? And if you are allowed to say who they are, just so we have a sense of what kind of person in our community does this thing called Vistage. In each group, I've had groups up to a, a total of 18 members. I'm probably not going to take it back to that because that's a lot of people to coordinate and so facilitate. So 18 is a lot. What's a sweet spot? Uh, around 15. Okay. And uh, one group I have 15 now, one 14, one 12. All, the, all those levels are about right. I've got 17 in the key group right now. And... 
Um, there's so you mentioned no competitors, there's no, no com- vendors or suppliers, so it's a safe environment. Yeah, no no competitors for sure. Okay. No major vendors and no major suppliers. Okay. As long as they're a, a small percentage, it's what can what am I willing to talk about in front of the group? Because that's where the and, power is. And it still is safe. Yeah, and okay. it's still safe. Somebody's I'm not going to get hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, so am I willing to talk about cash flow, bankruptcy, my wife and I getting a divorce, my kids on drugs or what have you? It's not only – Those are bus- serious issues. Yeah, it's not only business issues. Mm-hmm. We as human beings have personal issues. We have a joke in the Vistage groups that we're still waiting for somebody to bring a business issue to the group because everywhere I go there I am, so I take all of my personal mm-hmm. issues to work. And especially for a CEO or a business owner, their personal issues become work issues, whether yeah. they want to or not. And they're big because everybody sees them every day. All the employees are focused on the CEO, and they see them do all kinds of stuff, uh, not delegate, not not terminate, not discipline. So those are personal issues and really not business issues. I'm afraid to coach somebody. I'm afraid to terminate somebody. I'm afraid to hire somebody better than I am. So uh, we, we work on any kind of issue that's getting in the way of the CEO. So you mentioned uh, you took a year off and then you found this organization. How did you, it was called Tech at the time, how did you find it? And uh, how did you become a chair? Uh, that, that's an interesting question. I, uh, I think I told somebody this one time. When you're looking for something the least, that's when it shows up. So I thought I really had to. I thought I really had to get going. I was 55 years old. I had a wife. Uh, I thought I had to have a job, blah, blah, blah. And and so I hadn't even thought about a resume in 30 years, and it took me two or three months to figure out that I could do that. And so I did that and realized that I'd accomplished a few more things than I realized. And so I did some consulting work. I had a couple of people that asked me to come do some things for them. And one day on a Sunday, I was out playing golf, and I got a telephone call from one of my best friends that said to me, I think I figured out what you ought to be doing. And I said, wow, tell me because I have no clue. And he said, I'm in a I'm in a tech group, which is today a Vistage group, and uh, I just saw an advertisement where tech is looking for a chair in Las Vegas. So I, I suggest, you, suggest you go home and take a look at this and maybe give them a call. And I did. I went home and I took a look at that. I uh, somehow found out something more about what tech was all about. I was really interested in the purpose statement, which was to increase the effectiveness and enhance the lives of business owners and CEOs. And I said, that's what I need to be doing. So I called San Diego, and we did a couple of telephone interviews. Then I flew to Century City and did a two-hour videotaped interview, which was really interesting because I, uh, even though I was introverted, I wanted to see what I looked like on video. And How'd you do? 
I think I did well. I think it was a. I think uh, knowing that it was videoed was really cool because I was really focused on my eye contact. I was focused on what I was doing with my hands, how my body. Were you po- coached into that? No, you just had an instinct for it. Mm-hmm. Yep. I just knew. I just knew this was something I really wanted to do, and we've talked a lot about this. When the why is big enough, then. We are capable of a lot of cool stuff, and at that point, the why was really big for me. I wanted to, I wanted to prove to myself and probably my dad, who had been da- dead for twenty years, that I was capable of doing something. And so I set out, and here, here we are, sixteen, seventeen years later. Talk a little bit more about what that means when the why is big enough. Well. Um, I mean, everyone has heard at this point probably uh, Simon Sinek. Yeah, he talks about start with why. Did you did you um, internalize this when the why is big enough? Yeah, before so, Simon Sinek or after Simon Sinek? Probably after Simon Sinek uh, in in uh, two thousand or two thousand one when I did this, Simon hadn't showed up yet, and there was something that I knew was really important. Uh, I don't know whether it's intuition, ingrained in me. Uh, I don't know what it was. I just knew that this was where I was supposed to be. And today, though, what we've learned is we, we at this time of year, decide we're going to have some New Year's resolutions. I want to lose weight. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to mm-hmm. take this trip. And so, and I'm going to join this athletic club. And by January 31, uh, that's an old thing. I haven't been, but uh, mm-hmm. maybe I've been 10 or 20 times, except now that I don't need to go anymore. And the reason is the why behind that has not been solidified, thought of, articulated, and it just falls away. And so when the why is big enough for any of us, we can find so an example let's stick with the weight for a second and at this time of year at the end of the year everyone is thinking about new year's resolution and i'm going to lose weight i'm going to sign yeah. up at lifetime fitness uh, because there's a why and the why right now feels big because it's new year's resolution it's holiday time i ate too much uh, candy bars i ate too much turkey and i really need to to get it back and then maybe i get to a comfortable weight but i'm not really at a at a healthy weight as an example so January, like you were saying, that why diminishes. What would be a scenario where somebody's why carries them through? Is it? uh, it's, it's really a challenge, and, and probably very few of us get there until we're in the ambulance with the red lights going and the siren going. Then the why really starts getting big. Prior to that, we think about maybe we'll look better, be more attractive, our clothes will fit better, we'll be cooler, maybe I can run a 10K or something. The why really starts getting big, though, when I start thinking about family, grandkids, great-grandkids. This is for you or your observation? Observation. Okay. Observation. And when, when we really start realizing that we want to spend quality time with grandkids and great-grandkids, that's when the why starts becoming bigger. Prior to that, it's probably not going to be big enough if we just want our clothes to fit better or we don't want to look cooler because that can go away fairly easily. But family and community is something that's really important. 
So you and I met around, it was either 2010 or 2011, and I'm pretty sure it was Carol that introduced us. I was at a different company before this one, and uh, in, a, in a very quick way, I became head of the office here, and I had, like you were talking about, responsibility for bottom line, and she thought it would be of value to me to meet with you and, and consider Vistage, and I considered it then. And you know, I want to. We already started kind of shifting into the takeaways that I've learned from you, and I want to go uh, more in that direction. You and I sat down, if I remember, in the small conference room of that office, and we had a conversation. It lasted, uh, I'm going to say, well over an hour. And right out of that first conversation, you first you gave me a gift, which we'll talk about. It was the valuable conversation model. Uh, you shifted the way that I think or thought about a looking back now, this could have been an issue that I would have brought to a Vistage group. And in, uh, you know, two or three questions, you shifted the way that I'm thinking about. I thought about a particular issue, but you also introduced this concept to me and the way that you described it. And I'll, I'll do it to the best of my recollection from, uh, seven, six, seven years ago, and you can jump in and, and put me on track here. You said most of us went to the school of MSU. Now, I went to UNLV. There's a certificate behind me on the wall that says I went to UNLV, but you convinced me that day that I, that I went to the school of MSU. Talk about that. Yeah, um, that's interesting. That's that's a uh, cleaned up version of what some people say, but most of us make. If you stuff. feel like it, you can actually say the actual version because there's no FCC here. Well, we'll leave that alone. Okay, you can figure it out. It's make stuff up. We as human beings go throughout the day, every day of our life, making stuff up. Most of which is not true. It seems to be true. It fits our book of law. It it fits the story that we want to tell, except it's just not true. And uh, how do we make stuff up? We like we like to justify. We like to uh, make ourselves feel better. We like to tell our story. We like to tell ourselves and others stories to justify what we're doing or what decisions we're making or why we're doing something or not doing something. And it's it's a form of lying, except we don't intend to lie. We just say stuff like our employees will never let us do that or our customers will never let us do that or I could never be smart enough to achieve that or I could never own a Bentley or whatever it is. So like, let's take the Bentley example. If somebody is saying that to themselves, they're, they're making it up. What class did they go to, to put that idea or that narrative in their mind that, Hey, I just, I'll, I'll never own a Bentley. That's probably a way to sabotage myself or keep myself safe. So I don't look like a failure where I don't think I'm self a fa- I'm a failure because I knew I'd never be able to do that in the first place. So then I just say, so I'm not stretching myself enough, even though I, I feel like I want a Bentley or whatever the thing is, I'm not going to stretch myself enough to try 
to rise rise to that level of achievement so that I don't fall on my face or fool myself or embarrass myself. Yeah. Now, you, when you you talked about your father when you were going down the vestige uh, path and you wanted to prove to him, even though he's been passed, uh, that you are, I don't know if you said good enough or that you could do this. Is this an example of MSU? Where yeah. you were making stuff up? Yeah. Um, I made stuff up. Although, you know, now that you ask that question, I left home when I was 18, and I never went back. And I set out then to prove to my dad that I was good enough. I, I don't know that I knew that at that time. My dad really wanted me to be a college football player. And I never thought I was good enough. I never thought I was big enough, fast enough, and all that kind of stuff. So I set out to uh, do something else, to become a CPA and uh, a success, whatever that means. I decided at an early age that I was going to get married. I knew I was going to have two kids. I knew they were going to be four years apart. And I did all that. And I married my wife when we were 19 years old. And those were the positive things. Later on, though, uh, things started creeping in that were not true. I think those first years... Like what? Like, um, wow, I don't know when the first time that uh, came up. Because those first few years, I was... As I look back, I, I don't remember being afraid of anything. I put my uh, 14-month-old son in our car with my wife and started heading west from uh, Houston when we were 25 years old to Las Vegas, never thinking that anything was ever going to be a problem. So in those early years, I think my confidence level was really big. I think as I got older and older, that's when I started making stuff up and maybe getting too conservative or protecting or defending what I had done or had and became conservative and said, wait a minute, maybe you're really not this good. Maybe you better not shoot for the moon. Maybe you better be careful. And I think that just creeps hmm. into... I think that crept into me, and I think it has a tendency to creep into all of us, depending on who's around us. So for me, at that first meeting when you and I were sitting in that small conference room, I had, you know, looking back, I would say I was probably making some stuff up too. And the dynamic of the issue was there was a person who I, you could say he was at the time my superior in the office, and he was just a terrible everything. And there was um, a level above him or the owner of the company. And my issue was with the terrible person. And you asked me a couple questions of, you know, you got me um, thinking about this person, the terrible one. And um, you said, so, you know, you think he's motivated because of this? Yes. And if he was uh, doing this, this would happen. Mm -hmm. That's true. Okay. And, you know, he's doing all these things and it's very negative, as you're saying, yet the owner of the company, well, you asked, does the owner of the company know about this? And I said, oh, sure. Yeah. And then you asked, why 
do you think he's letting it continue? And it blew the issue for me. It was, you know, a, a fairly contained issue at the time. It blew it wide open. And now I had a, a whole holster of other issues to start processing. Now, your, your email, if I want to send you an email, it's your name at beliefchallenger.com. Why is that? I believe my job is to challenge your thinking and your beliefs so you can discover something. My job is not to come give you the answer to anything because I probably don't have that answer because I'm not you, you're not me. We've got different personalities. We've got different vocabularies. We've got different experiences. And it's really cool that you tell me this story because at the time <clears> – <throat> I didn't know what I, what I did. All I was there to do was to ask you questions. And lo and behold, X number of years later, you're telling me you discovered something. And that's the whole purpose of the Vistage Group and the Vistage process is to help people discover who they are, what they want, and what price they're willing to pay for whatever that is. So those three questions you asked me about two or three years ago, and we're going we're gonna to get into those. Who are you? What do you want? What price are you willing to pay? But you just talked about asking questions, and that's the way that you challenge beliefs. How have you always been somebody that asks powerful questions, or is that something that you developed? Uh, <clears throat> I've had to work really hard at developing that. Uh, I'm, I told you I'm a recovering CPA, and as luck would have it, I probably should have been a lawyer because I made the highest score on the CPA exam on the law part. So I'm in the earlier days, and, and I can still do it, I'm a good litigator, and I can interrogate people, and I can ask leading questions, and I can do all that kind of courtroom stuff. That's not the value that I want to bring. I want to bring curious questions that I can ask you, and you can just say, wow. How do you ask a curious question versus a different type of question? The curious question starts with, I'm just curious, or I'm just wondering, or how would, how would, or what, it, it normally starts with one of two words, what or how. The, the most interesting question I heard early on was, what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? Okay, that's just curious. And what kind of answers does that question produce? Uh, well, the, first, the first one is, uh, I don't know, because I'm, af- <laughs> I'm afraid. I'm, the person is afraid to say, mm-hmm. because that's such an open-ended thing. And... I've never been confronted with that question before, and I may be afraid to say it. Because so then as a facilitator, you make it easier, yeah. and you ask a follow-up question. Yeah. Let's just, let's just talk about some possibilities. What would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? Would you be the president of the United States? Would you be the governor of Nevada? Would you like to be the mayor of Las Vegas? You want to be the president of 
So I feel like that question reframes the the thought process. Mm-hmm. Is that am I yeah, is that accurate? Well, it, it you can add on to that and say not only what would you do if you can fail, what would you do if money were no object? So now then we've taken all the barriers down. Okay. And now then it gives you the chance to just talk about possibilities without barriers. Because many times when we start talking about strategies in a company, we, first of all, say we'll never be able to afford that, so let's don't talk about that. Or that's probably too expensive. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, we don't have so the So here's expertise. the M- MSU stuff. Yeah. So I made it up, therefore I'm thinking it. And then as you often, uh, one, of the, one of the takeaways is beliefs drive behavior. So if I think it, I believe it, and then that's how I behave. Yeah, I first have to believe it, and then followed quickly after that is the behavior that follows that belief, and then the result follows how I behave. So if I'm not getting the result I want, I only have two options. I can blame you, or I can blame the weather. I can blame Osama or Obama (laughs) or Trump or the economy. Or I can look in the mirror and ask myself, what behavior would I like to change? And to change a behavior, Mm -hmm. I generally have to change a belief that I have. And the best example I can give you of that is if you've got a phone, an iPhone or a Samsung or something, that you're not getting the results you want, then to get different results, I've got to change the programming. Okay. Or change the apps. Because otherwise, every time somebody dials my number, it's going to ring the same way every time. And that's the way you and I as uh, human beings behave. Everywhere we go, there we are, and we behave the same way because we're programmed from early childhood. And if I want a different behavior, i got to look at the how I believe and see if I'm willing to change that. It's it's really I, I give my uh, my uh, pastor friends uh, the example that I'm in the same business they're in, and one of the one of the businesses they're in is giving or tithing. So if I want my my church members or parish members or whatever you want to call them to give more then I've got to impact or I've got to help them find out what they believe about giving. I've been through some programs that teach that givers gain. And I've come to I've come to understand that's true. The more I hold on to things, the less I'm going to get back. And my parents taught me to give and save. And my wife taught me how to give. How how did your wife teach you how to give? By doing. Because she said, this this is what we're going to do. And she was in charge of the checkbook. Mm -hmm. And so we've been tithing for 30 years or something like that, 10% of everything we make. And I've learned just by watching. So that's that's having a big big enough why. Yeah. Is my wife said so. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it gets any bigger than that, at least not in my house. And followed after that, though. It's supported by the results that we've never missed 
any of that giving away. And it's that was not my nature, although my ter- my parents taught me that. She, I had to watch her to be able to do it. So I want to I want to shift a little bit and talk about what it's like in a Vistage meeting. So we I have a group that I attend once a month and uh, there's 14 or 15 15 15 folks in in my group. Um if you're comfortable saying some of the folks that are in the group that'd be great if not that's okay too. But let's talk about what is it that we do when we go uh, and meet once a month. So you're the, the chair or the facilitator. You've got some responsibilities. We have some, some responsibilities. Let's, let's talk about that a little bit. We meet uh, once a month, all day long, uh, 12 times a year, eight out of the 12 meetings. We have a speaker. We have access to about uh, 15, 1,800 speakers in North America on just about any subject you could. How do we have access to them? Um, they have presented some type of resume, uh, what they want to talk about. They're vetted. They're, uh, they present one or two times, get some scores, and find out whether they can uh, uh, impact CEOs or not. So it's a thing to become a Vistage speaker? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And Vistage speakers are scored every time they speak to a group on one to five. Okay. And so they're constantly being given feedback. So they're the best that anybody can find. They're nor- they normally speak to very large groups. We have them speak to 10 to 15 people around a conference room table, and we can uh, challenge them with our company issues or, uh, you know, ask specific questions. So and can, they, can, let's talk a little bit about who are some of our speakers this year. Uh, because one of the things that impresses me about Vistage and about the speakers specifically is really the variety of topics that, that, are, um, that are covered. So these are folks that become a subject matter expert around, and we'll talk a little bit about what, and then they create a th- – it's basically three-hour presentation, and then if I'm understanding the uh, – description that you're giving they then have to get vetted by vistage in that presentation and then they can become a vistage speaker and then chairs like you around the country or in other parts of the world can look in the vistage library and say okay these are the good speakers that would these are speakers that would be good for my group so your job is really to curate the the vistage speaker series for all of the groups uh so from this year i have a few in mind uh who, who are some of yours that that you can remember off the top of your head uh, <clears throat> there are so many uh, that would be hard to name all of them. However, I've got three or four off the top of my head. One that impacted me the most. Is that from this year? Uh, uh, two or three years ago. I've got, okay. him, I've got him coming back in April of this year. Chalmers Brothers. He taught us how to have a conversation. And he also taught us that everything we have has been generated or created by conversation. What do you mean? That and, sounds just so basic. Well, you and me. We were both started by a conversation. Husband and wife conversation? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mom and dad. Yeah. We were started by a conversation. If you want to get from point A to point B with anything, Mm -hmm. it generally has to be 
through a conversation. So I, I haven't heard him as a speaker, but I, I did find him on. He has a TED Talk yes. that's out there. And if you're interested, Chalmers Brothers, his first name is spelled C-H-A-L-M-E-R-S, last name Brothers, like it sounds, B-R-O-T-H-E-R-S. And one of the examples he gives in the in the talk um, is what you're talking about. It's... Uh, you you're married one second you're you're sorry you're single one second and then you're married the next and how does that happen and it happens because of a conversation and it sounds so basic and fundamental and it actually is basic and fundamental and uh, i'm excited is he did you confirm him or not yet no he's coming in april awesome i can't wait for that and so, when he, when he gave that example mm-hmm. he talks about if you say yes that creates an outcome. Yes. If you say no, that creates something totally different. And then, yeah, you reminded me, he also talks about if you are attending a wedding and then they, they ask, is there anybody that, ob- that objects, speak now or forever hold your peace? And if you're the person in the back of the room that raises your hand and shouts, I object, you are also creating something. You're creating chaos. You're creating a different dynamic than what you had before with the groom, if you were there for the groom. You're creating a different identity for yourself also, and it's, it's humorous how he really makes this point. One of my favorite speakers from this year is a guy named Jason Hartnoff. And going back to your if the why is big enough, his material for me was, it was really fascinating in that the first part of the presentation was how our brain works and how it makes decisions. And then he, he, he gave us a – I don't know how many questions were in that little worksheet – uh, but it was the first question was something like, what What are you trying to change in your life? And it could be weight or it could be I want to increase revenue or whatever. There were many examples in the room. And then you follow a series of, of questions on that worksheet. It's really hard to um, communicate how powerful it was. But it, and the, then there was a, the next page was how you reprogram your belief around whatever it was. So weight was an easy example for everyone to relate to. I want to lose 20 pounds by this day and time. And then you work through why you're not doing that. And then within minutes for me, uh, I was, I don't, I don't think I raised my hand actually, Clyde. I think you volunteered me. Um, within minutes, mine wasn't around weight. It was around a business issue, but he got me to a point where I realized that my mom had modeled for me a behavior when I was a kid and how that belief shows up at my job every single day. And then if I want to change that belief, that was the second part of his presentation. Here's how you replace the existing belief with the next belief so that you can achieve what you want. So one guy about having valuable conversations, another guy about changing your beliefs, but that's, it's not always business. I forgot the nutrition guy. What was his name? Dan, Dan Miller, Dan Miller. He had a pretty big why for what, why he does what he does. Yeah. It's, um, his dad died young, as I recall. Yeah. He was pretty graphic when he was describing and he wants to live. 107 or 13 or something like that so he can spend time with his grandkids but for a second though it sounds absurd if somebody says i want to live until i'm 107 but the way that he presented his information and his and his i'm assuming their facts his research 
you believe pretty quickly that he can actually live until he's 107. And it was a way of, it's not, it wasn't just, it's, it's diet and exercise. What am I missing? It's behavior that follows the belief that I can live that long. And so if I really and truly believe that, then I'm going to behave, I'm going to have behaviors that supports that belief about diet, exercise, taking care of myself, because the result is so important. The why is so big. And that's, that's where he is. And what about Eve Groznitsky? Did I say her name right? Yeah, I'd, I'd forgotten about her for a while. She talks about fixed mindsets and uh, and growth mindset, growth mindsets, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And I, being a CPA or mm, blaming my parents or whatever I want to do, I came from a very fixed mindset, and I've had to work hard to become a growth mindset. Fixed mindsets: We'll never be able to do that. We've never done it before. It costs too much. Um, and on and on and on the weather or whatever you want to mm-hmm. and it's just fixed nothing is possible other than what we've always done and so when she described that mindset it, it was uh, in a she described it in a way where this is the person at work you know Charlie and or let's Floyd. let's pick on you Floyd yeah Floyd. Floyd in accounting uh, he has a fixed mindset and everybody knows that if you want to do something that's a little different than typical uh, you don't go to Floyd because you're going to get this. We can't do it because of that. We can't da da da. And it was it was comical because everyone has that. I don't. I shouldn't say everybody. It's typical that person exists in an organization, and when you know that person, you know to go around them instead of to work with them. And that was um, the the result she was trying to get us to. And then a growth mindset is how, characterized more by, oh yeah, we can do that. Oh, sure. No problem. And then you, she challenged you with, who do you want to work with? Yeah. And and why do we have Floyds in our organization? Yeah. Um, those were some speakers from this year. You mentioned Chalmers Brothers was one of your all-time favorite. Is there another one or two that come to mind? Yeah, there's uh, at least two. Okay. Uh, one is uh, a, a, a guy from India, and his name is Balaji, B-A-L-A-J-I. That's his first name. And what he taught me is there's three levels of integrity. The lowest level of integrity on the rung of the ladder is just telling the truth. If you want to do something better than that, then you do what you say you're going to do. And the highest level of integrity is saying what I'm thinking. And that's not a personal attack about how stupid you are, how dumb you are, or how overweight you are. Mm -hmm. It's about telling you what I'm thinking about our ideology, about our strategy, about our, our beliefs, and what we're capable of doing. So when I'm not telling you what I'm thinking, I'm withholding and stealing from you. So he really caused me to be able to be more open in, in a coaching setting. Okay. Uh, another person... Wait, so hold on. What, what is the difference between the, the first or the bottom bar and the second and the middle bar? The bottom one was... Uh, Say, the bottom, the lowest, the lowest is telling the truth. So telling the truth, how is that different than doing what I said I'm going to do? Well, I can, I can tell you the truth about a factual thing. Uh, however, 
uh, that may not be what I'm going to do. I can, uh, I can, I can give you a factual yes or no or right or wrong. Uh, I think the what I what I'm telling you what I'm going to do is if I give you my word, that's more than just telling the truth. It means you can take it to the bank because I'm going to go do it. And so there's I, a behavior following the call it a statement. Yeah. Okay. And I can tell you the truth and still withhold what I'm really thinking. I can still tell you the truth about something. Mm-hmm. However, stop short of saying what I'm really thinking and what's on my mind. Because <laughs> uh, I'm afraid if I tell you what I'm really thinking, you may not like me or you may make fun of me or I could be wrong. And so he he stretched me to talk and 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 uh, say more about what I'm thinking than I'd ever done before. And then who's the third that the you mentioned? The third is Don Smika, S-C-H-M-I-N-C-K-E. And he's the first one that introduced me to our beliefs drive our behaviors, drive our outcomes, our results. Ever since I heard him, which had to be 14, 15 years ago, that's been the one mantra that I've hung on to because I know that's what causes our outcomes. Now, one other uh, we've got coming back this year is James Newton. He uh, is just as powerful, and he uh, helped me understand much more about who I am. He, he helped me to discover something that I've never forgotten, and I must have heard him 10 years ago. He helped me understand I have the uh, addiction to beliefs, the emotional addiction to emotional addiction to explanation. And ever since I heard him, I didn't know there was emotional. What does that mean? Uh, that means that I'm addicted to explaining to you what my point is, because if I can explain it. You'll agree with me. But if you don't agree with me in the past, I just thought you were stupid or something. So now I developed that addiction mm-hmm. because if I can explain it, you'll understand it. You'll agree with me, support me. What happens if you explain it and I don't agree with you? Well, in Then the I'm o- stupid? Yeah, in the old days. Okay. Yeah. I have since <laughs> learned, though, that you see the world differently than I do. And it's okay for us to disagree. However, I have to really watch it because I want to continue to explain. Stand up, talk mm-hmm. louder, whatever. And that has really calmed me down to just stop it, Clyde. Let the other person see the world the way they want to. Yeah, we talked a little bit earlier about three questions that you asked me. Who are you? What do you want? And what price are you willing to pay? So if I were to turn the tables and ask you those questions, how would you answer? Who am I? Yes. That's a a giant question to ask anybody, and it would probably take a lifetime to explain. Uh, There there are a lot of levels. The the first time I ever got that question asked, uh, I said, well, I'm Clyde. And they said, no, I don't think so. That's just your name. Who was they? I don't remember okay. my consultant or somebody. Who are you? And I said, well, I'm Clyde. Uh, no, that's just your name. 
And so you start digging. I started digging deeper. Uh, I'm a son. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a great great granddad. Um, I'm. I did a, a leadership program in 2009, and I got a a contract with myself about who I Do you I remember am. what it was called? Is the it, program? Uh, yeah. It's a PSI. Uh, PSI? PSI? PSI here in Las okay. Vegas. PSI. PSI. And uh, the contract was, I'm a deserving, trusting, passionate man, spontaneously celebrating my abundant life now. When I live that and I... And I believe that's who I am. Everybody around me changes. It's it's a most incredible experience. That uh, why I, wouldn't you live that? Because I was raised uh, in a way to think I wasn't deserving. I certainly wasn't. I didn't trust anybody. My parents didn't trust anybody. I became a CPA, and CPAs don't trust anybody. And then I worked for organizations that didn't trust anybody. And it took a breakthrough for me to trust you and it just be okay. Uh, I was, I, I think I was raised that you, you had to earn my trust. So therefore, the only way you could earn my trust is for me to keep score until you got to a certain, certain score. Once you got to that score, then I could say, okay, I can trust him. You sound so vicious. Yeah. Well, that's not the worst part. Tomorrow you stump your toe, so you lose a few points. Now you've fallen below the threshold, <laughs> and I don't trust you anymore. And I've come to the conclusion that trust isn't just a decision. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust you. If you hurt me, then maybe I change my mind. But to begin with, I'm just, just going to trust did you answer what price are you willing to pay? I feel like who are you, what do you want, were both wrapped into that into that answer that you gave about being deserving and trusting and, and celebrating your abundant life now. Um, there, is, I, is one, let me ask a different way. When you go through these and I'm asking myself, who am I? And I do that soul searching. And then what do I want? Which, you know, the themes of this whole conversation is it's okay to want what you want and not want what your parents projected on you or your teachers projected on you or your partner or your spouse or whomever. So first starts with who am I? What is it that I really want? Now, what does it mean to ask yourself? What price am I willing to pay? It really, I, it really depends on what you, what I want. Okay, for instance, let's take let's take my health. Once I found it had a melanoma, there was no price I was not willing to pay. I got my car and I visited doctors I didn't know. I went to Santa Barbara quarterly, then annually. I've never missed a year since 1987. Uh, in, in 2014 or 15, 14, I guess, I realized I found out that I had prostate cancer. There was no price I was not willing to pay. Is price just money? No. No. I think it's commitment. It's uh, a willingness to look bad. It's willingness to make mistakes. 
It's a willingness to be embarrassed. It's uh, it's what I'm willing to give up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I may have to give up a friend. I may have to give up something I thought I'd always wanted all my life. Um, so for me, as an example, it's uh, do I want to make a million dollars? Sure. Do I want to travel around the country and spend time away from my kids chasing the money? Absolutely not. So I'm not willing to pay the price of, in this case, time away from my, my wife and my, my kids in exchange for the money. Yeah. I have one final question for you, Clyde. Okay. And I'm putting you on the spot because I didn't give this to you in advance. You are a Vistage chair or facilitator. If you were to be a Vistage speaker, what would you teach? I thought about that, and the answer is something around conversations and language. Because without conversations and language, we're not going to get what we want. And everybody wants something. And the only way for me to get it or create it is through a conversation. Clyde Horner, thank you so much. I think we covered a lot of ground. I don't know if we solved any of the world's issues today, but maybe hopefully some issues for people listening to this podcast. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. See you next time. Thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast, and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like the show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.